Welcome to the Jesus Movement Podcast, presented by Awaken the Dawn. We host conversations so you can hear stories from across the movement, receive fresh biblical insights, and gain practical tools to experience more of Jesus's presence in your life, ministry, and city, because we believe Jesus changes everything. Hey everyone, welcome to today's podcast episode. I'm your host, Matthew Lilly, and we have a lot of hope for you today. So if you're looking around the world and maybe wondering what's going on, if you feel discouraged, if you feel overwhelmed by the complexities of what's happening in our culture today, we have some great news for you. Jesus is doing amazing things, and he has amazing promises in his word for what he's going to do for us, his people in the days ahead. And so we want to encourage you today on this episode. I've got special guest with us, David Slyker, who is a key leader at the International House of Prayer in Kansas City and the director of the university there. And he's just written a new book called The Triumph of Beauty, God's Radiant Answer for the World's Growing Darkness. And so we want to talk about that. We want to talk about the triumph of God's beauty and uh, his answers in the midst of darkness. So David, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks. It's good to be back. I love that I'm here again. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to chat with you again. Uh, For some people who may not know you, just take a minute, introduce yourself, who you are, your family, your ministry. Well, yeah, my name is David Schleicher. I've been at the International House of Prayer in Kansas City for over 20 years now. As you said, I'm giving leadership to the university here, which is our our ministry school, our media school, um, worship, internships, training, and just lots of stuff. So yeah, I've been here a while uh, with Mike Bickle and the team, and uh, my wife, Tracy. I've got uh, three older children. I've got a a daughter that's married now, and she's in ministry in Northern California with her husband. Uh, Another daughter that's a senior at the school here. Which is a which is a genuine honor. I love it. And then my son is a sophomore here, and then our youngest is a junior higher. She's she's uh, twelve. And the interesting thing is, I love telling the story. We've tried to get our kids to go elsewhere. Like we wanted <laughs> our oldest daughter to do uh, conservatory for piano. We wanted mm. our middle daughter to go to YWAM because she wanted to go to YWAM. And yeah. we wanted our youngest son to go to engineering school on a soccer scholarship. And the Lord spoke to all three in really clear, powerful ways to do IHOP, IHOP you. And even our oldest at times is like, I think I want to be back. And I'm going, wow, that's, I would not expect that. I, I want them to go, but <laughs> the Lord yeah. keeps drawing them back here. So I love being with my family, doing what we do together. It's, it's a really yeah. special season. So, so yeah. I'm thankful to the Lord for it. Yeah, for sure. That's amazing. So I'm not sure if that's what you're looking for, but if you poke me, I'm going to talk about my family. No, that's great. That's great. I love it. And for those who may not know about IHOP in Kansas City, I think most most of our listeners will be familiar, but 23 years of 24-hour-a-day live worship and prayer that's been going on at the missions base there in Kansas City. Uh, it's incredible. Thank you all. I mean, thank you and the team and the staff for just laboring there in prayer and um, being so faithful to the Lord. We're all so inspired by IHOP and we love the community there in Kansas City. So how you feeling about the Chiefs this year? I, I have to say, <laughs> I feel really, really good. I do feel really, I'm pretty, 
I like what they're doing. I like how they're doing. So yeah, it's a good time to be a Chiefs fan. Yeah, for sure. Hey, well, let's get into the book. I I love it. The Triumph of Beauty. Uh, Let's just start with why did you decide to write this book? I've uh, had a stirring in my heart related to this message for a number of years. Yeah. I just haven't known how to write it. There's a, there's a couple of messages that I love. I love the hope of the victorious church under the leadership of Jesus before his return. I love how that victory is depicted in the Song of Solomon. I just, I, I love that message that uh, the maturity of the, of the bride in the Song of Solomon is, it's just such a beautiful picture of where the church is going. So I've carried that for a number of years, but I haven't been sure how to write about it. And so I was asked by Baker Books to write two books. And so when it came to the second book, I knew I wanted to write on this subject. I just early on wasn't sure how. And I think as events unfolded, Nation's Rage, my last book, I wrote before the pandemic, Triumph of Beauty, I've written, of course, after. And to put those ideas into the context of the current angst about the church, Mm. whether it be low-level complaints about the church, which have always existed, but now we've gone beyond complaint to a wholesale abandoning of the church, accusations against the church, some of the yeah. accusations being justified accusations related to real pain and real mistreatment. And so this feels like a little bit of a low moment for the church in terms of her reputation in different pockets and areas. And again, not the universal global church, but different denominations, different leaders. We're just in a, we're in a moment that feels similar to the 1980s, if you remember there were just these giant figures on television. They, they were called televangelists, and uh, they were giant figures. That was the first time in American and church history that, that men had ascended to such notoriety for preaching the gospel. And of course, in the 80s, when a number of them begin to fall, we go through an era of real low opinions of the church and of Christians because of the stigma of the men that had fallen. And it, it feels like we're in another iteration of that. We're in another wave of that, which, which you could argue that we're in a much worse or a much more severe expression of that. And so for me, it's like, you know what? I've had this message just stirring in me for so many years to put it into that context and to try to get us talking about the church and our future together from the Lord's perspective, from what the Lord says about the church. It just feels so critical to me, particularly in what you said at the beginning, that this context of hope, biblical hope, like a genuine biblical hope that what is and what we see is not the end of the story. And to know that story, I think, is to be able to bear the stigma of the present. Mm, so good. Well, I have to confess, I haven't read the entire book yet, but I've started to dig into it and, uh, and begin to skim through it here. Looks like it's divided into two parts. Part one says the journey into God's beauty, which is where I'd love to start our conversation. Then part two is beauty overcoming the darkness. So let's start with our journey into God's beauty, because you know the whole theme of the book is the is the triumph of beauty. And and so in your mind, what does it mean to to think of God as as beautiful? You know, why do we why should we think of God that way? I, you know, our family was in the mountains of North Carolina last month, and I'm just looking at the beautiful mountains, and you just are like, you're in awe. It's beautiful. You're inspired. And I was thinking about this very topic because I said, man, I, I sometimes think of God as big or eternal. Uh, sometimes I think of him as intimate and close, but to think of God as beautiful and to be touched by God 
and in my experiencing him the same way I experience the beauty of his creation, but even on a greater level. Like, I don't always think about that. And I don't always, always think about God in the right way, in that beautiful way. But the Bible invites us to see God and encounter him as beautiful, doesn't it? Well, you know, it's interesting to me. You know, May 14th, 1983, Mike Bickle is in the middle of a 21 day fast that the Lord called sovereignly. Bob Jones, for those that know that name, and a series of divine events, boom, this little young adult church and, uh, and others from the city are fasting for 21 days. And they, what they don't know is they're fasting for the birthing of a worldwide prayer and worship movement, far bigger than us, far bigger than our little ministry. Um, you're in the middle of it. I mean, what you do, you're right in the middle of it. So it's, it's interesting to think about a bunch of young people in 1983, fasting and praying to birth what you and I get to do today and be yeah. a part of. And so here they are, they're praying and fasting. And in that 21 days, the Lord is setting into place necessary components of a long-term intercession movement for Israel, to say it like that. A mm-hmm. long-term, night and day, don't quit, stay with it. What are the components we're going to need to engage with the Lord, to see his purposes birthed on the earth through intercession. And I think the great surprise is May 14th, 1983. The Lord insists, without telling the whole story, the Lord insists on beauty, Psalm 27.4, to be the centerpiece. He insists on it, of an intercession movement. And so the Lord says, in essence, through Bob, Mike, your prayer's answered. Mike goes, what prayer? Was it Ephesians 1? Was it Ephesians 3? Bob goes, no, none of those. None of the ones you prayed in the microphone. Your prayer, Psalm 27, 4, we know it well. This one thing I've asked, that will I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to do what? To gaze on your beauty and to Mm -hmm. inquire in your temple. And so you think, well, why is that the centerpiece of the Tabernacle of David? Why is that the centerpiece of a worldwide prayer movement? Why does the Lord insist to David that the centerpiece of their governmental intercession be beauty? And, and one, of the, one of the simple answers is, if, if left to ourselves, an intercession movement will always be about them, 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 those right. people, those sinners, those broken people. There's a self-righteousness that fuels us that we're unaware of on a daily basis that gets us lost in ourselves. We get lost in our destiny. We get lost in our sense of responsibility in a sincere sense. We get lost in how bad they are. We get lost in how bad the progressives are. We, get, we just get lost in how wicked everybody is. Yeah. And so when we intercede, we intercede so that they'll get it and so that they'll turn, so that they'll change. And what's interesting is the Lord doesn't even want to put in the center of an intercession movement us being humble and talking about how much we need to change. He goes, no, not that either. He goes, don't talk about how much they need to change. Don't even talk to me mostly about how much you need to change. Though so that's an important conversation. He goes, I'd like you at the centerpiece of your intercession together to talk to me about me. And we go, (laughs) what? And it's exactly for the reasons that you just said. You just said it. It's beautiful. We are so accidentally self-righteous, self-absorbed, and self-protecting. And so what the genius of God, what pulls us out of that in the most powerful, consuming way possible, he uses beauty. You know, he could mostly teach us. He could mostly tell us what dummies we are. He could mostly point out our flaws. He could mostly give us strategies. I mean, how many meetings have you been in where people want strategies? 
We want strategies. Yeah. Let's get strategies. Yeah. And the Lord goes, you know, strategies aren't going to help you from your real dilemma of mm. self-exaltation, self-justification, self-gratification, self-protection. Strategies are nice, but they're not going to help you with your primary dilemma of your self-absorption. The only thing that can really begin to pull you out is beauty. It captures you. The most wicked man can be arrested by a sunset. I, I like to use the example of Vincent van Gogh, a man tormented by what people think now was bipolar, depression, I mean, despair, just torment. The man was tormented, and yet his legacy is his ability to extract beauty from the world around him and not focus on his own pain, but focus on beauty. You see in his, in his life and work, the beauty of the man was that beauty was able to get him out of his own torment. That's the power of beauty. It, it's that comprehensive. And so at the center of the universe isn't laws, the laws matter. At the center of the universe isn't strategies. At the center of the universe is beauty. The throne yeah. room is primarily beautiful. The Revelation it. 4, throne of God, is just wrapped in beauty. And it's meant to get us out of ourselves and just captured by God and thinking about Him. So good. And that will revolutionize our prayer lives. It's revolutionized my prayer life and my relationship with God. But I can imagine some people are going to be tuning in, listening to this, and they go, okay, so I need to see God as beautiful, but how do I even do that? <laughs> because... I close my eyes and it's black. I don't see, I don't see anything, right? Uh, so, so how do we do Psalm 27 for it? How do we gaze upon the beauty of God? Just, I mean, just in a practical way, like what does that mean for people? The verse that I love to point people to is Song of Solomon 1.4, where she says, this is what I want my life to be about. If you'll draw me, I'll run. And, mm. and the way that we live in our Christianity is we try to do the reverse. I'll run until you draw me. I'll run hard at Christianity. I'll run hard at obeying the rules. I'll run hard. If you're telling me to pray, I'll pray. We are a grit our teeth, buck up, work hard, please God, sincere people. But the bride in Song of Solomon reverses the order. And in doing so, she gives us the secret to long-term enjoyable Christianity. She goes, no, the order isn't, I do it right and you bless me. The order is, if you'll draw me, if you'll help me, I'll respond. If you'll initiate, because I don't have the resource, I don't have the ability. It's exactly as you said. Okay, beauty matters, but I'm blind. <laughs> and so the Lord goes, exactly. You can't see until I turn the light on. You're, in, you're stuck in a dark room. Even, you're unable to see beauty. And even if I turn the light on, we won't agree on what's beautiful. I'll point to a painting and call it beautiful, and because you're set against me in different ways, and you love your own opinion, you'll say, no, it's not beautiful. And so there's things, like God calls meekness beautiful. And on the front end, meekness right. is like, I hate it. I hate it. I don't find meekness to be beautiful. But the Lord slowly converts us over time to the wisdom of meekness, not primarily by beating us over the head with its importance, but by being meek towards us the way that the Lord loves us is beautiful. And it slowly converts us into what he considers beautiful. But we have to go on the journey, which means he has to love us first. He has to reveal. He has to show. He has to help. We, we, that's our starting point. If we go, I'm in for the beauty thing, but I'm blind, the Lord goes, good. Ask me to turn the light on. 
We call yeah. that, of course, Ephesians 1, 17, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. God, I, I need you to give me wisdom and revelation. Colossians 1, I need to be filled with the knowledge of your will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. I need to understand. I don't. I need to see. I can't. I need to appreciate. I don't. I need to agree. I don't. So when we just, without shame, acknowledge our deficiency and ask for help, we're already on the way. It's, it's not hard, but we make it hard by trying to turn the light on ourselves. <laughs> yeah. So simple, but not always uh, easy when we get in the way <laughs> of it on our own here. So we need to ask the Lord, open the eyes of our hearts, help us to see, help us to behold, help us to align our desires and, and our loves with yours. Simple prayer. I mean, even simpler than that, just go, Lord, make this Bible beautiful to me. Make your yeah, word beautiful. On. I mean, David said, your word's a lamp. It was beautiful. It moved his heart. Mm, and so yeah. we go to, the, we open our Bible. We're starting from a place where we're not moved by it. It doesn't move <laughs> me. I, I read Paul. I'm not moved. I read David. It's okay. But <laughs> I want to be moved. I want to be moved by the Sermon on the Mount. And so we just open to those passages and go, God, make this beautiful. Don't just make it functional. Don't just help mm-hmm. me to be a better Christian. Would you help me to be moved? Would you help me to see it and make it beautiful to me? Yeah, that's so good. Talk to me about as we progress in this journey, as we grow and mature, and, and we begin to have a sense of beholding that beauty of God, and we begin to see Him and begin to enjoy and be fascinated and beholding the beauty of who He, who he really is. What begins to happen in our hearts and our lives? As this begins, as we begin to reorient our lives around Him and begin to align, you know, what we find beautiful with with what is truly beautiful, what He finds beautiful as well. The centerpiece of the Christian faith, one of them, is Matthew five through seven, the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. And the centerpiece of the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes. You could call them the beautiful attitudes. Mm. And so the the way that God wants to make us beautiful is not mysterious. This is right there in Matthew 5. What does God consider to be beautiful? He starts by going, blessed are the poor in spirit. And again, each one, when you read them, especially the first few, you're like, poor in spirit is beautiful. I reject that negative confession. I'm rich. <laughs> and, and, and the Lord goes, no, no, your, your heart is beautiful when you acknowledge your poverty, which is what we actually just did. I mean, right. your, your last question and the last answer was about acknowledging our poverty. Yeah. I want to see beauty, but I don't. I want to be moved by the word, but I'm not. I, yeah. I want to love you better, but I don't. We're acknowledging our poverty. And the Lord goes, that's the beginning of a beautiful heart right there. Yeah. And then, blessed are those who mourn. Our culture hates mourning. We just hate it. We don't find yeah. mourning to be beautiful. And when somebody's mourning around us, we try to comfort them out of their mourning. And get them into be into a good mood. And yeah. the Lord actually calls mourning and lament throughout the scriptures beautiful, but we don't share that value. And yeah. on and on and on and on. So a heart that mourns, a heart that's not okay with the lack and is going is lamenting, going, God, I, I want what you have. The Lord goes, That's beautiful to me. That's beautiful. The one that's meek, the one that that's merciful, the one that, that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Each beatitude is so beautiful. It moves the Lord, that's the life. That's where it gets fun. So when we start mm-hmm. to actually see our hearts resemble those attitudes, and our heart is no longer moved by worldly wealth or worldly opportunities or even the good things, you know, the, the good but inferior. When we're right. moved by something different and we're moved by what moves God, he gets moved by that. He goes, that 
blesses me. That moves me. I love that. That's beautiful to me that you care about these things because most people don't naturally care about these things. And so that's, to me, the process of beautification, the process of our heart and our attitudes being made beautiful. And it's just so objective. It's just, it's not a mystery, but it's hard to go on the journey. Yeah, for sure. It makes me think of that, that verse in Corinthians, you know, as we behold Jesus, we are transformed from glory to glory. A lot of people say we become what we behold, right? And as we behold him, as we behold his beauty, he begins to make us beautiful. As yes, well. absolutely. And again, to see him is to see him in action in the way that he loves. The way that he loves is so beautiful, but we don't appreciate it without the lens of scripture to apply to it because we can see him in action, but not know yeah. what he's doing. And so the beauty isn't appreciated because we're, we're not sure what we're seeing. But mm. then all of a sudden we put the lens of scripture onto the love and action of Jesus. And it's like, whoa, you're meek. You're, you love your enemies. The, the way you love your enemies is provoking your kindness, your generosity. It just starts to spill over, and he becomes more attractive at a heart level yeah. when we get what's going on. So good. I'd love to get into the second half, too, beauty overcoming darkness. Anything else you want to say about our journey into God's beauty before we go on? You know, the, the first part of the book, there's a really challenging chapter because everything I'm saying sounds great. But more than that, it's absolutely necessary to get to where the Lord wants us to go by grace, that our journey goes through some pretty significant pain points. And so Mm. there's a chapter in there that I think is pretty challenging related to offense at the church. I've found with really godly, amazing people, really tender, humble people, I'll talk about the victorious church. I'll talk. Attention, pastors and ministry leaders. We want to invite you to an ATD Leadership Summit in Salt Lake City, Utah, July 26th through the 28th. This ATD Leadership Summit is for leaders from across America that carry a shared value of hosting the presence of God through day and night worship and prayer and gospel proclamation. Our Awaken the Dawn team will be hosting the event, including David Bradshaw, Matthew Lilly, and David Valier. When you join us for this summit, you will experience real and refreshing connection with like-hearted leaders in an informal, fun, and relational environment, including four free meals together, teaching and training sessions catered to pioneering presence-centered ministry leaders, spirit-filled and life-giving times of worship, prophetic ministry, and prayer to refresh your heart interactive breakout sessions and workshops to dialogue about practical ministry challenges and a regional worship and prayer gathering the weekend after the summit to learn more and register go to awakenthedawn.com today again join us for the atd leadership summit in salt lake city july 26 through the 28th register now at awakenthedawn.com we can't wait to see you there about how the Lord views the church and where this thing is going. And, and inevitably, somebody, and often, I'm talking about 60, 70-year-old mature saints, will, will admit, hey, this is a challenge for me. I've been rejected by leaders. I've been hurt. I've been mistreated. And yeah. that's, you know, that's sometimes, I've been misunderstood. And that's sometimes at best. Then you've got the stories of genuine abuse. You've got the stories of genuine abuse of power, genuinely uh, wicked things that have happened within the church that people want to lean into this message, but 
different situations are giving them every reason to, to check out and to give up on and to write off. And so the great, I believe the great challenge that is ahead of us is to know that once that love gets in us, once we're infected by the love of Jesus, it's the kind of love that views people's brokenness and sin differently. And then eventually, it's the kind of love that helps us to view people's sin against us differently. Because everything within the therapeutic world, that, and that language is really taking hold within the church, the therapeutic yeah. language of how sure. to deal with people's brokenness. I mean, it's, it's all good things. It's all healthy boundaries. It's all distance, healthy distance. It's, in other words, the therapeutic world is giving the church a lot of constructive ways to distance themselves from toxic people. And again, I don't want to disparage that, but it's creating a destabilization, a fracturing, and an isolation. Because at a certain point, everybody's toxic. At a certain point, we shouldn't be around anybody except for the people that agree with us. (laughs) And there's there's a troubling trajectory that we're all on, fueled by helpful therapeutic language that's empowering unforgiveness and distance. Wow. And to fight through that, to love our persecutors, to love our abusers, to love really toxic leaders, to love them like Jesus does, to see the bigger picture. That doesn't mean that we have to be in their lives and be their best friends. But at the same time, there's a challenge in loving that the Lord wants to call us to rise up to. And this is just, it's a, it's a very, very difficult, touchy, sensitive subject. But if it's not addressed in a book like this, then we're going to have a lot of great language for love while also maintaining the therapeutic distance from one another that leaves us writing one another off. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. It's one thing to talk about God's going to make the church beautiful. There's going to be a victorious bride at the end of the age and and these kinds of things. You can almost become theoretical with it, you know? But the reality on the ground is day-to-day, life-to-life with people that are broken <laughs> and dealing with that, you know, iron sharpening iron and, and that, that rub against one another and having to deal with those offenses and forgiveness and, and all those kinds of things. So I'm so thankful that you, uh, that you touched on that in the book because that is, it's critical. We're never going to be able to, to come into maturity without dealing with those things. When I got your book, I was struck by how positive the theme of it was. The last book, as you said, was called The Nation's Rage, which, was, which is a pretty intense title of the book, which obviously uh, comes from Psalms 2. And there was hope in that book, too, if you read it, which I, I did. And that was a great, great book. But the contrast of the challenges coming at the end of the age and then Jesus doing the maturity, the triumphing of beauty. Yeah, I just think there's a there's a a beautiful contrast. I think there's a biblical story between kind of those two. I don't know if that was intentional, the way you kind of have the contrast between the the titles of those books, but maybe just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think um, if we are clear and we're not afraid to talk about the negative dynamics of the future, I think the problem is sometimes positivity, I want to say this kindly, sometimes positivity in the name of faith ends up denying the plain facts of Scripture and human nature that's right in front of us. Right. The message of it's getting better, 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 it just, it, it's not panning out. It's not. And there's <laughs> somebody that might go, yeah, but wait, it's going to still get better on the other side of this. It's like, 
at a certain point, you have to deal with the reality of what the scripture says about where this is going. And yeah. but once you do that, once you do that, it, it, you can begin to, in a healthy way, focus on some really important parts of that story. That yes, persecution is coming and trouble's coming, but that's not the only thing that's coming. You know, the book of Acts is a great microcosm of it, in that mm. there's some really negative dynamics in the book of Acts, but a very victorious church in the midst of it all. Yeah. And so what I don't want to do is write the victorious church book first, and then we're like, yeah, it's like, no, I'd rather write it second. I'd rather be honest <laughs> about the trouble. Yeah. So that we can be sober-minded as Peter asked us to be. But in the place of being sober-minded, we can be joyful with hope in terms of now we can define victory in a biblical way. Sometimes we define victory in a sentimental way. And sometimes yeah. victory equals the absence of pain or victory equals the absence of hardship. And it's like, no, no, victory Jesus style does involve a cross. So we have to be honest about that. But at the same time, victory Jesus style equals the cross displaying who you really are for the world to see. And, and I, don't, I don't know that we know how to handle both points. It's like, Jesus went to the cross, so I don't have to. Nope. He went to the cross in part to, to begin to empower an end time church to endure a global cross in the mm. same manner that he did, the end time church will. But, right. uh, but the beauty of that is the cross is the vehicle to get everyone looking at him. And the global cross of end-time persecution is the vehicle to get everyone looking at the church. When right now, everyone dismisses the church or wants to ignore or suppress the church. Yeah. The big question is, when they look at us, when Jesus sets it up so the whole earth is looking, what will they see? The triumph of beauty is the promise I mean the guarantee. I don't mean like I'm speaking in faith language. I call into being in the name of Jesus. I yeah. mean the, the promise of what they will see. They will see a victorious church, but victory equals loves like Jesus. That as they're being persecuted, they're generous. They're not closed hearted. As they're being oppressed, they're forgiving. But more than forgiving, they're, they're interceding and contending for mercy. I mean, they're going to see the love of Jesus. The tormentors of the church and the persecutors of the church are going to be met with beauty. Why? Because the world has an accusation against God. And the way that the Lord answers the accusation, it's the most tender, kind way you can imagine. He fills the church with love and beauty as mercy to the wicked and the yeah. oppressor and the tormentor. It's mercy. He goes before. Before my judgment comes, I'm going to show you who I am to give you an opportunity to repent. The triumph of beauty is who we are under pressure. And in that day, it's who we are and what we put on display under historic pressure. So to write the first book is to be honest. The pressure is coming. Even the glory is going to create pressure. Therefore, there's no way out. We've got to prepare. But now the good news, that preparation has a payoff. When the beauty of the church is God's apologetic to the wicked of his worth and his beauty and his supremacy and his rightness. It's so kind. He's going to, a billion soul harvest means that a billion are going to be convinced by God's apologetic through a tender, loving, victorious church to repent. It's such good news. Mm. But right now, we're not 
we're not built in this culture to see that as good news. Totally, totally. Man, you just said a whole lot. When you look at the scripture, what are, what are some key passages? You know, when, when you're thinking about all this that you just shared, what the church is going to look like, the future, what are some of those key promises, some of those key passages that you kind of look to that, go, that give you hope, that, that give you a sense of that triumph? The, the easiest one, I mean, the most like plain, straightforward, no guesswork. This is a guarantee. The church will look like this before the Lord returns. It's John 17, 26. It's John 17, the whole chapter. Yeah. The, the, the upper room, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. You, you just, it doesn't get any better than Jesus talking right to the Father about us. And the key phrase besides the prayer that the same love that Jesus has for the Father, the same love that the Father has for the Son, that that love would be in them. He says that. I mean, Wow. <laughs> that that makes it a, that makes it a guarantee. Yeah. Then you take that guarantee and he puts it into a context or a mission that the world might know. And what's incredible is he doesn't give the church a mission in John 17. He gives the Father a mission about the church. He says, mm. "Father, I'm asking you to do it that the world might know." And so the Father has a mission now. He always did. I'm being I'm using that language tongue in cheek because we always think about our mission, my mission, our right. mission. It never yeah. occurred to us that in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, Jesus the Son gives the Father a mission. Put something in the church that the world can see. I mean, it's just so powerful. Then the other passage that goes along with that is Song of Solomon 8.6. The climax of the bride's journey into mature love is the promise, the guarantee of a fiery seal of divine love by which we're empowered to love like Jesus in a way that's stronger than death in a way that, that no waters can quench. And so the unquenchable love that's stronger than death, that Song of Solomon 8.6 promises, Jesus praised that in John 17. Therefore, we can be confident that we're going to walk in that. And of course, there's, there's many other places, but those two right there, they just set our course. We go, Lord, that's, that's where it's going. It's not a, a faith statement. It's not a cross my fingers and hope statement. My yeah. hope is built on an anchor of the prayer of Jesus to the Father and the anchor of how that prayer is reflected in Song of Solomon. Because if it was just Song of Solomon, I don't know. Or if it, was, if it was just John 17, I don't know. But when you put the two together, and then, of course, you end, you know, you end up in Romans 8. I mean, it's just, yeah. there's just so many great passages that point us towards and Ephesians 4 would be another one. And I mean, I could yeah. go on and on and on and on. But those are two very powerful passages. Yeah, no, that's so good. Well, uh, keep painting this picture for us because, I mean, you talk about the, the church being beautiful, being victorious, being triumphant in a sense, but, but there is going to be in the midst of darkness. That's real too. You know, there is going to be pushback. So, so just with as much clarity as you can, like paint the picture for us, you know, I mean, uh, is, is God going to protect his church from like, from being hurt, from being tormented, from being martyred? Like, is that going to be part of the process? You know, what is, what is maturity really going to look like? How is this thing going to, I mean, I'm thinking about the return of Jesus. You know, that's kind of what we're, we're looking towards is, is when, he, when he comes again, just kind of paint that picture for us. What is that going to look like as we get closer and closer to the Lord's return, both the, the darkness and the light, you know? Yeah, I'll start with the good news. The good news is the world is going to get impossibly dark. Why is that That's good the news? good news? <laughs> that is, it is the good. It is. 
Because right now, well, I think we're living the bad news right now. We mm. imagine that future persecution, trouble, torment, and oppression is bad news. Nah, bad news to me is a church that doesn't look so different than the world. Wow. Bad news for me is a lukewarm church. I mean, we use so many of the same methodologies, so many of the same strategies. We use the same language. In some ways, you know, a, a massively successful self-help movement doesn't sound so different than some of the messaging I hear in the body of Christ. Mm. And so to me, we're living the bad news. We're living a very low-key, impotent, unhelpful form of Christianity that the Lord is very committed to removing from the earth. And so that's part of the promise as well, that the version of Christianity that we're in right now is it's, it's temporary. There's an expiration date on that. And so the good news of growing darkness is the alternative in the light that's going to be on the church in that day. It's not just signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are essentially meaningless in a context of historic darkness if there's not the outrageous, extravagant love of Jesus. The mm. signs and wonders gather the crowd, but it's, the, it's how the church loves that gathered crowd that is the game changer. Even if the gathered crowd wants to kill the signs and wonders Christians, it's the way that the church loves, whether that crowd wants to kill or repent, whether that crowd wants to you know, imprison or that crowd wants to join. It, whatever the end, yeah. whatever the outcome, the good news is the Father will have a bride for Jesus that loves extravagantly in those moments in a way that's very different than right now. Anyways, I'm not going to go hard on that point, but that's, that's a giant point is that one could argue that the worst times are right now and that the best times are yet to come, but we just got to redefine yeah. what we're after here. And so then in terms of what it looks like, you know, I'll give some bad news for the ones that were closest to him, to the father, the closest man possible to the Father, Jesus, is crucified. The greatest man born of a woman is beheaded. And then from there, every one of God's friends in Hebrews 11 were torn into or some kind of persecution and, and not enjoyable end. That's what happened to all his friends. And then every single one of the apostles. I'm not saying we're all going to be martyred. I am saying right. that in John... That in John 13 and 17, Jesus is very clear. If you want friendship with me, just know that there is no greater love than laying down your life for a friend. Will you lay mm -hmm. down your life for me? Are you willing? And at that point, they weren't. But at the end of their life, they were. And their journey ends in laying their life down. And the Lord goes, you're my friends. You're my friends. You'll put it on the line. You'll pay the price. You'll give your lives. He goes, you're my friends. And that ultimately, that's what we ache for more than anything else. We want to be called a friend of God, but we don't always want to go the way of friendship. We want friendship with God with as much comfort as possible and yeah. along the way. So now I'll say one last thing on that question, Revelation 2 and 3 and Book of Acts. You know, James is martyred. Peter is spared. Book of Revelation, one church is persecuted. The other is protected. We don't know what the answer is going to be in his sovereign yeah. purpose. We don't know how he's going to lead the Church of America, the Church of the Russian-speaking world, the Church of China. We don't know when it all starts coming down that there's going to be differentiation. 
like there is in Revelation 2 and 3, where some are persecuted, some are spared, some are martyred, some are protected, um, just like the book of Acts. There will be differentiation, but we won't complain, actually, at all. Not one. You won't hear one complaint from one person, because the one that's martyred gets extravagantly rewarded, and the one that's spared or protected gets to play in an end-time context with authority and power and love for a little longer before the Lord returns. But right. whether you're taken in persecution or whether you're protected in persecution, it's like if I live or die, it's like only you're going to think it's only like two more years before the Lord comes back. Now, no one's going to say they got a bad deal. No one is going to look at God and go, I got the short end of that one. Like every single one, the martyred one, the protected one, the provided for one, the prophetic one, the apostolic one, the, which apostolic equals tortured and killed. They all died. And so the people that are like, I'm an apostle, they put it on the business card. I'm like, ooh, that doesn't end well. And so, right. and so however it goes down, no one's going to say, I got a bad deal. Romans 8, the favor on our lives, however it goes down, we're all going to go, wow. I got way more than I deserved in that exchange. Mm-hmm. I got to be here a little longer. Like Paul said, I'd rather be with the Lord on the sea of glass, but it's for your good that I'm here. I'd rather, I mean, Paul's saying in Philippians, I'd rather be dead. That's an, that's an amazing statement. We've yeah. got to recalibrate. We've got to recalibrate how we think about death and resurrection and the age to come. But Paul goes, I'd rather be dead and with the Lord, but it's better for you that I'm here. And so there's some that are going to go, you know, I'd rather be dead right now, but it's better for you that I'm here. And there are others that will go, I'm, I'm dead. And my spirit man is in a prayer meeting on the sea of glass contending for your good. We're in the, we're in, I mean, nobody that's dead is complaining that loves Jesus. Not one person right. that's died. Is complaining. No matter how they die, no matter how horrible their death, not one mm. of them are complaining right now. But then the ones that get to live, we don't complain either. And so, yeah. which is it? It's like to live is Christ, to die is gain. I mean, either way, we're going to throw our lives at something and we're not going to complain about the outcome. Yes. Amen. So good. David, we're running short on time here. I know in the book, The Triumph of Beauty, you've got so much more. So we're going to encourage people to Get a copy of this book. We'll link to it in the uh, description of this episode and all of that. I just want to give you a moment if you have any closing thoughts, and then I'd love for you to just pray for our listeners today that we would really grasp the beauty of the Lord and the beauty of, of His plan for the church as well. My closing thoughts. I love doing this with you. <laughs> you, just, you just ask great questions, and you're easy to talk to, and I feel like I have the space like, I feel like, cause, you know, at this point, I'm, I, like you, I've done a bunch of these, and you don't always get the space to mm. really develop your thoughts. These are complex things that we're wrestling with. They're not easy. Totally. And for the person out there that's like, okay, I like this message, but I don't. I want to say, yeah, yeah I get it. But totally. I want to thank you, Matthew. I want to thank you for the room that you give me to play with some really difficult thoughts and say them, and you don't back down from them. <laughs> I've said some hard things. <laughs> so I just appreciate you. I appreciate this. I appreciate getting to do this. You're, you're really good at what you do, and I like doing it with you. I just want to say that. Thank you, David. Yeah. So I'll pray. Lord, help us. None of us are sufficient for these things. None of us. None of us are spiritual enough. None of us are fiery enough. We're not sufficient for these things. We don't think this way. You do. And you're wanting to help us to think like you think. So I'm asking, Lord, that you would give us a sense of time and journey, that you're going to help us. That wherever we feel like we are on this journey, and we're not too late, and, it's, and there's time in the grace of God, I'm asking that you would give our hearts rest, that our lives are in your hands, 
and that our future is in your hands. And you're going to help us. You're helping us now. I'm asking for the one that feels even unsettled by the things that I've said. I'm asking that the peace and the confidence of your excellent leadership would be stronger than the unsettled sense of, oh, no, I, I didn't know this stuff. Lord, I'm asking that you would comfort us with the skillful excellence of your leadership, the way you love us. You love us so well. You lead us perfectly. And so I'm asking, Lord, unsettle us, but also help us. Mm, yeah. Awaken us, but also lead us. I'm asking, Lord, that you would give us a greater sense of how good you are at this, that, that uh, how bad we are at this is not the story. You're so good at this. And we lean into your skillful leadership in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. We would love for you to hit follow or subscribe in whatever app you're using so that you can continue to get episodes like this every month. If you enjoyed today's episode, do us a favor and please share it with your friends and post it on social media. Be sure to tag Awaken the Dawn in your post so that we can reshare that with all of our friends as well. If you're tuning in on Apple, please leave us a rating or a review. And if you're on YouTube, give us that thumbs up like button and leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of today's episode. And we really appreciate it. Finally, please visit our website at awakenthedawn.com. You can find out more about our ministry and movement, and you can also make a donation to help support this podcast and the Awaken the Dawn ministry. Thank you again for tuning in today, and don't forget, Jesus changes everything.